Welcome to the New York Historical Society's Public Programs Podcast, featuring lectures and conversations presented here at New York Historical's Robert H. Smith Auditorium. The New York Historical Society is a preeminent educational and research institution that is home to both New York City's oldest museum and one of the nation's most distinguished research libraries. This podcast, recorded live on Saturday, March 9, 2019, is a part of the Bernard and Irene Schwartz Distinguished Speakers Series. In this talk, Alabama Senator Doug Jones, in conversation with Dr. Eddie Glaude, discusses his role as the U.S. attorney who prosecuted two Ku Klux Klan members responsible for the 1963 Birmingham church bombing. Wow, I'm sitting next to Senator Doug Jones. (laughs) (laughs) This is great. Uh, Thank you for the gift of the book. Uh, I think you might want to introduce some folks. I do. I, I appreciate that. I have my family with me, or at least most of them here. My wife, Louise, who I affectionately refer to as my running mate during the the entire campaign. Son, youngest son, Christopher, uh, middle child, Carson. Um, My oldest daughter and her grandbabies are back in Birmingham, all with the flu right now, I think. (laughs) Um, uh, My incredible agent, Lois de la Haba, here from New York, and my co-author, Greg Truman, who I couldn't have, those two I couldn't have done this without. So thank you, and thanks for being here. I must admit, I'm a bit nervous. I rarely do these things in front of my partner for life, and that is uh, Winifred, Dr. Winifred Brown Glaude. So I can only imagine the criticisms I'm going to get on the way home. Oh, you hadn't seen nothing. <laughs> so let's let's talk about this extraordinary journey. Uh, it's an extraordinary book on so many different levels, and. As I mentioned to you, the book can be thought of in, as in, in three parts. Uh, one is a kind of broad introduction uh, of your formation, right. of, of, of how you were shaped in, in Alabama. Ensley, right? Fairfield. 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 U.S. Steel Town. Yeah. And, Second largest steelmaking facility in the country. And then there's the middle part of the book, uh, which is you know the story around Chambliss and Blatt and, right. and Cherry. And then there's the third part of the book which is about our current political moment and right. its relationship to the past. Let's talk about this beginning. Tell us a little bit about your early formation. Well, uh, Fairfield, Alabama, as I said, it was a steel, steel town. Uh, everyone seemed like was connected to United States Steel. It employed 23,000, 24,000 people at one time. It's got less than 1,000 there now for a, a lot of reasons. They've shut down a lot of things, trying to open a few things up. Um, Seemed like everyone was connected to U.S. Steel. My dad worked there. Uh, he was a steel worker. He worked there for a long time and moved into management. My grandfather, uh, my maternal grandfather, uh, worked there for God knows how long. Yeah, in fact, he died there. He had a heart attack at age 62 and died on the floor of the tin mill. Um, oh, wow. And if you're not connected, my, at least with my family, if you weren't connected to the steel mill, you were connected to coal mines. And my, my mother's side of the family in particular, and dad, dad's father, my paternal grandfather, um, was a coal miner, retired from the coal mines, was a union organizer uh, back in the day uh, for the United Mine Workers. So it was just a real blue-collar town. Mm-hmm. And it was the little area that I, I grew up in, the only town part that I knew, was a little area called Glen Oaks, which was a brand-new suburb. suburb. You know, a 1950s post-war baby boomer suburb. We were the first family to move in uh, to Glen Oaks. 
And Fairfield was just a microcosm of all the other cities um, or areas in Alabama and really the country. You had uh, a segregated part. All these new little suburbs growing up were all white, and Fairfield proper was a little bit more black. There was a, a place near Lloyd Nolan Hospital and Miles College that was a predominantly um, exclusively a, a black neighborhoods. Right. And it was a very, you know, growing up, you know, I'm born in 1954, so grew up with a lot of things, the space program, civil rights, Kennedy, you name it. Mm-hmm. And it was, um, it, it was an incredibly protected life out there what in Glen Oaks. It was just very protective. You know, we, we, t- it's just a remarkable today to sit there and look at, at a phone and get instantaneous news and to see on, you know, 240 channels at the, at the hotel where we're staying. We had three TV stations right. at the time. Actually, three that then became four early on. We didn't even have a CBS station early. Um, it was ABC, NBC, and the PBS station, which at that time nobody watched. <laughs> I mean, you know, I mean, I, no, it was real talk. Who the, who the, you know, if you're a kid, who the hell wants to watch educational TV when you're? <laughs> um, and so, right. and, and and even the news was in thirty minute increments, unless right. there was something major and that they broke in for. It was just thirty minutes, just like that, and there was a newspaper. And you, so, you 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 tell the story of your upbringing in a way that, uh, and as you're describing this in this moment. That the, that the reality of, of, of the racial landscape of Alabama touched you, but not really right. in, a, in, a, in an intimate and deep way. Talk a little bit about, about it, it, this. It really didn't in those early years yeah. because we were, you know, seven or eight miles out of downtown Birmingham at the time was a journey away because there was no interstate. And it would take, you know, when we wanted to go into downtown, it was a day trip. You, you plan the whole day. You go and you shop and you have lunch at the cafeteria at Britling's and then you go to a movie and you make a full day out of it. The zoo was the same way. It was on the other side of town. And so when you, when you are just focused in your little enclave, you are just focused in your little enclave. Right. And, you know, my, uh, my issues uh, at that time was trying to be a kid. And I did a pretty good job at it. I don't know what kind of <laughs> Rick Bragg writes somewhere. I don't know what kind of kind of man I am, but I was, I was a damn good boy. (laughs) And uh, that's kind of the way I feel between football and baseball and, you know, every Saturday. It's a fundamental reality of this country, right? That we live segregated lives. Absolutely. And and one of the interesting ways in which race works in the nation is kind a kind of willful ignorance, right? And it's not just simply that you lived in a really relatively protected environment. The reality of race in Alabama right. was there. Oh, yeah. For sure. You lived it. Yeah, right? yeah. No, there, there, for, for sure it was there. And I'm, I'm, a, I'm assuming my, my parents and, and all of my relatives lived it more than exactly. I did. Yeah. And so we, we were not ignorant to what was going on by and large. We knew there were things happening. You know, we I just didn't in, get into the detail. I fell in love with your mother. You know, for a variety of reasons, I'm not a. I'm from Mississippi, so your mother is a is a Nick Saban, University of Alabama oh, yeah. Crimson Tide fanatic, Absolutely. right? Yeah. Um, um, and I remember growing up on in the on the coast of Mississippi. You know, from Moss Point. Uh, <laughs> this is mother's from Moss Point, um, and and uh, Bear Bryant walked into mm-hmm. our cafeteria to recruit one of our players, um, and you know, Bear Bryant is just Bear Bryant. Yeah. 
So talk a little bit about your mom and how she shaped you. Mom, stay-at-home mom, my, both my mother and her mother shaped me as much as, as anybody. My grandmother, uh, they were loving, caring. Uh, they were always there. It was the kind of uh, childhood that you knew that your parents were going to be there somehow, some way, wherever, whatever it was, whether it was a baseball game, whether it was later in, in junior high and high school, um, and they always had everything, she had everything right there for you. When you walk in the door in the afternoon, she was there to make sure everything was ready, cooking dinner every night, mm. you know, uh, every night. It was the same thing. And, you know, it didn't really didn't matter what we had. There was always baked beans there because that was my favorite. <laughs> that was your favorite. That was my favorite. So that was, you know, and just, um, and she was, and, and there for, other kids too. Our house was wide open. Right. I mean, it was just wide open during high school, junior high and high school, especially when we finally started venturing out. You know, I'd come home after a date, ready. I'm, you know, ready to go to bed, just tired, get up for the next day, and there would be twenty kids at my house. Right. You know, they're just there visiting with mom and dad, and that that was really very special. Right. Because it was the kind of it was the kind of household that was open that gave a, a lot of different points of view, and they let kids come in and just be themselves a little bit. Not that they came in in those days. You don't you didn't come in and say, "Okay, we're going to let you drink here in the privacy of your own our own home." That didn't happen at, at my house, and we didn't smoke and we didn't do any of those things. We just were kids and had fun, and and uh, they true. they truly were. Dad worked a couple of jobs, so it was mom who really ran the household. Mm-hmm. You know, dad. Worked at USDO, but he also had this side company to try to help boost our income just enough mm-hmm. to do those things that we could do. And so mom just ran the household. She was there uh, constantly. And she still tries to run our household <laughs> a lot today. She's, she'll be 88 in May. And, That's amazing. Yeah. So I'm trying to build to something. The politics of the household. Your dad is, I mentioned, you mentioned your dad was kind of conservative. Uh, dad, dad you was have to tell that story about Okay. Yeah, no, dad, dad was always pretty conservative. I mean, I, look, the, I think my family was like a lot. Um, they moved from the more democratic politics of John Kennedy in, in 1960 because everybody was Democrats at that time. And then as things got, and it was primarily all the civil rights issues and the war uh, mm-hmm. to some extent, um, moved to much more conservative. And dad, dad moved a lot faster than mom did. Mm-hmm. Mom kind of eased that way, but then now she's come back. I like to say dad, they're both still alive. Dads are really still pretty conservative. Mom's kind of an anarchist when it comes to her politics. <laughs> um, but they, they, they really did kind of move that way. And Dad especially was just real conservative in his politics. He did not like long hair and this whole new generation that was coming up in the late 60s. Flower children. No, flower children, the music, none of that. I mean, my mom and dad won dance contests doing the jitterbug back in the 40s and 50s, and they didn't like that at all. (laughs) And, And by the time I got into high school, you know, I was branching out a lot, and I just—I still love the music from the late '60s and the '70s, the classic rock and roll. And so, I just decided one day in my house, I was going—I was going to just decorate my room. You know, everything. You know, you get to that point, I think, and you think, okay, mom, dad, I'm—I'm going to do it. And so, <laughs> this time, all these—all these posters were coming out, and I'd 
you know, I'd have this poster and that poster. And, and, the, and the group Chicago, this was probably 1970, I guess, after the 1968 riots in Chicago and at the Democratic Convention, probably 1970 when I'm turning 16. Chicago comes out with their second album, and it's that Chrome album. And I bet you there's people in here that still have that album. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. And it's a Chrome album inside. It was a double album, and there was a, there was a poster. And the poster was the band members in a, just sitting in chairs like this individually. And then in the bottom right corner, there was the Chicago. And my dad saw that on the, post, on the wall. He came in and ripped that thing down. He said, what in the hell are you doing having a picture of the Chicago 7 on your... <laughs> I, have, I still that. haven't let him live that day. <laughs> That's just... <laughs> now, May 4th, 1970. Yeah. So many things happened uh, between, of course, April 4th, 68, King is killed. Right. Um, and by May 4th, 1970, there's Ken State. In the book, you say this is... This is an, uh, an epiphany for you, this right. moment. Talk a little bit about Kent State and why it was so important it, in your formation. It, it, the incident at the time wasn't. At the time, on May 4th, 1970, I am, that is my 16th birthday. I am focused on getting my driver's license and busting out. And I heard about it. I didn't think a whole lot. But you got to remember, at that point, I'm still... I'm still in this conservative household. I'm still very kind of um, law and order or whatever you want to call it. And it was not until the, that next school year. And we were in a social studies class, and we were going to have debates. And the, one of the topics was Kent State and what happened. And the debate was going to be whether or not you were really on the side of that national, the National Guard who fired those bullets to kill those kids, or you were going to be on the side of the students. No one in my class wanted to be on the side of the kids. Nobody. It was just, it was just, it was just kind of an institutional way that we were brought up. And so I said, okay, I'll do it. I mean, I'll step out there. And when I did, and I realized what really happened that day, and that you had teenagers and young college students uh, that were shot simply because they were protesting a war, maybe getting a little bit out of hand, but not, not deadly weapons out of hand. I, it, that's when things just really woke up for me, and I thought, okay, you know, it, I'm 16 now, 17, however old I was. I don't think I can take everything I hear as gospel anymore. Mm-hmm. Whether it's coming from my parents, whether it's coming from my educators, whether it's coming, especially coming from politicians, I just don't think I can do that anymore. It, I mean, it really did. I remember that doing that like it was yesterday, and just sitting there working and reading this stuff and going, "Holy cow! That is just that's just not what I I kept hearing about this." Right. Which which was almost and my parent nobody ever said this. No one ever say they deserved it. No one ever said that. But it was like, well, we've got to stop this somehow, some way. Mm-hmm. And, and that was a different way of saying it. And I thought, no, no, it's just wrong. And that really, that was a huge, it was a huge deal. Because right. at that point, when you, at that point, you can start being yourself and you can start really understanding and branching out uh, with me. Yeah. So if there, thank you so much. If there's, if there's a hero and there are heroes 
throughout the book. They're important, heroic people, I should say, throughout the book, courageous people throughout the book. There's a fellow in the early stages of your formation as a, as a, young, as a young man, right. not as a child or a teenager, but as a Bill Baxley. Mm-hmm. Talk a bit about this young, Houston County? Houston District, County, Alabama. District Attorney? Yeah. He was how old? Like, he was 28, 28 when he was elected Attorney General. Right. He was youngest. the youngest Attorney General in the country at the time. And it seems like his imprint is on your soul. Talk a little bit about yeah. him, Bill. Um, Bill was elected in 1970, uh, very young, progressive um, um, Attorney General, immediately stepped out to try to do these church bombing cases. And um, we talk about this uh, somewhat in the book. Bill was in law school when the, when the bomb exploded. And he was really moved by it uh, and wanted to just go take a year off of law school and go work with the U.S. attorney. Didn't do that. Uh, the U.S. attorney's office and the FBI closed the files in 1968. And Bill was elected in 1970, and, 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 he, was still, and he was still thinking about those cases even then. And when he was sworn in in January of 1971, he was given a card because we didn't have cell phones then. We didn't have 800 numbers then. And he was given a card that had a listing for all the major cities in Alabama, had a local number that you could call, and it would connect you to the switchboard at the state capitol hmm. to make a call wherever. And he got that card the day before he was sworn in. On, every, on each corner of that card, he wrote the names of those four girls. Addie Mae, Carol, Denise, Cynthia. And we, he found that card a couple of years ago. Wow. We've got it. Yeah, we, we've talked together. And so when Bill, when Bill was, he did a lot of things. He was environmentally conscious. Um, some people blame him for some of the decline in U.S. Steel because he shut down the smokestacks. It was horrible what was going on in the my neck of the woods. Yeah, Birmingham was called, we, we went from being called Bombingham to Smoke City mm-hmm. because of the industrial pollution in Birmingham. He did that. He did public corruption. He did civil rights. He hired the first African-American assistant district uh, uh, attorney general uh, and, and really put his staff on a diversity map that Alabama had not had. Before he hired his first black assistant in probably 1972, the only uh, African-Americans in the Capitol building were the custodians, mm-hmm. and he he really did an amazing. And this is job. nineteen. This is early nineteen seventies. Early nineteen seventies, right. and so Bill prosecuted the the Chambliss case. I, I I was in law school at Cumberland uh, School of Law in Birmingham at the time, and nineteen seventy four. I'd had a, an opportunity to spend the day with the late Justice William O. Douglas. He came to Birmingham. He came to Tuscaloosa, where I was in school. Um, on the anniversary of Brown versus Board of Education, the 20-year anniversary. Oh, my God, I'm dating myself. Um, (laughs) Brown Brown and I are about the same age, May of 1954. Right. And and, and so I I was fortunate enough to spend the day with him. He's an amazing man. And I asked him as we're flying back to Atlanta what advice he would give for somebody who wanted to be a trial lawyer. And he said, go watch good trials. Just go watch trials. Uh, Don't try to mimic good lawyers. Just go watch them. You'll pick it up. And so when I had the opportunity and I was in law school, um, I know you're in academics, but I cut classes to go learn. <laughs> I love telling that story to teachers and academics. Um, 
<laughs> but I, I cut several days to go watch Baxley, and I sat up in the balcony uh, watching Bill and the, his witnesses, but his closing argument was just remarkable. Never dreaming that 24 years later in the Blanton case, I would not only be doing the case, I'd be doing it in that same courtroom. It was just something. So let's, let's get to that, the meat of, of the book, right? So talk a little bit about, because you said you went from Bombingham to Smoke City. Right. Let's give a context for, 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 your, for your readers and, our, and the folks in the audience, right? There's something particular about Birmingham and its racial climate. Yeah. Um, there's something particular about how the clan, the Eastern Clavern, functions yes. in this place. Yeah. Talk a little bit about the backstory. You don't quite get a lot of that in the text, but give me a little backstory well, about, about this, this, the, these characters yeah. that you then uh, pursue for well, so the, long. The, the, the backstory in, in, primarily in the 50s and 60s uh, was that the Klan was a prolific organization. There were claverns. That was the chapters of the clan. There were claverns that met everywhere um, during this time. Uh, you had other entities that popped up, like the National States Rights Party, J.B. Mm-hmm. Stoner uh, and Ed Fields and those guys, which, which I think I tell this story. Remind me to tell you the story about Baxley's letter at some okay. point. They get a kick out of that. Um, but they, they operated with impunity. The Eastview 13 clavern was probably the most violent group. And they would meet at the Fraternal Order of Police Lodge in Birmingham. That's where they would meet. Wow, yeah. wow. And, but there was a separate group that did not feel like that the Klan was doing enough to stem the tide of civil rights. You've got to remember, as, as the movement was growing, as the civil rights movement was going, growing around the country, but particularly in the South and in Birmingham and Dr. King's rise starting, you know, with, with the uh, Montgomery bus boycott uh, and Fred Shuttlesworth integrating schools in Birmingham. As the movement was growing, so was Klan violence. I mean, there was a direct correlation. Those Klansmen uh, were seeing their segregated way of life sliding away. They didn't like it. And, and what some progressive politicians like the late Big Jim Folsom, the big mules in Alabama business, kind of fostered that fear. They, they, they were the ones behind the scenes trying to stoke the fires of, of the Klan. And you had Bull Connor, who mm-hmm. was the police commissioner, who was a radio announcer at the time and just became a race baiter and became police commissioner. And he was just, you know, he was, he was the one. And then you had George Wallace that got elected. And so one of the things now that you really have as the movement's growing, you not only have the Klan that was doing more violence, you had people like Wallace and Bull Connor in their words and deeds pretty much empowering them. Right. Right. You know, they were basically giving them the green light. Wallace was famously quoted as saying, we need a few first-class funerals in order to, to stem this. And, um, and so that was all, it was coming to a crescendo. In 1963, I, I, you know, I don't think people really fully realize how important the year 1963 was in this country, uh, because it started out with in, in Birmingham with the children's marches right. and the fire hoses and the dogs. And, and you, all it's important for folks to understand that those the fire hoses and dogs were sicked on children. children. Absolutely. Um, you know, when they when when those 
when that first started, and, and, and to go back a little bit, when the Freedom Riders came through Birmingham in like 1961, uh, and they went to the Greyhound bus station, their bus had already been firebombed about at, in Aniston, Aniston right. about a, uh, an hour out of Birmingham. They got to Birmingham. There was, everybody knew exactly when they were coming, but there was not a police officer in sight. And we all know now that Connor had cut a deal with the Klan to keep police officers away for 20 minutes or so uh, before they came to break it up. And the scene was, was pretty ugly. It was Mother's Day in 1961. And when asked, why didn't you have any police officers there? They, he said, Connor said, well, they were visiting their, his, their mamas. True story. And that really created momentum for change in Birmingham because when those photographs were shown around the, uh, the world, group of business leaders in, in Japan at Kiwanis or Rotary or International um, saw the reaction of their colleagues, not just in the United States, but from around the world. And they realized that, that Birmingham was on its way to drying up. Mm-hmm. Their businesses were at stake. They were no friends of the movement, but their businesses were at stake. And so they came back and they forged an alliance to change the form of government. It took two years to do that. Birmingham citizens voted go from a three-member commission that included Connor as the, the, the most vocal one to a mayor and city council. And they were going to have elections in Birmingham for the new mayor in February. And that's when the, uh, Fred Shuttlesworth had convinced Dr. King to come over for, the, for the, what was then called Project Seats, Project Confrontation. And they postponed the march because Bull Connor was running for mayor. If they had marched in Birmingham, Bull Connor would have been elected. When he got in a runoff, they postponed it again. And fortunately, Connor was defeated by Albert Botwell, who was by by those standards a moderate, still a segregationist, but a but a moderate in by by comparison. Um, and so the marches came to Birmingham, and initially that it was Project C. Mm-hmm. Dr. King went to jail, wrote the famous letter from a Birmingham jail, which, which by the way, I hope, un, you know, every year in, on the U.S. Senate we we read George Washington's farewell address. This year, there's going to be somebody reading letter from a Birmingham jail. So watch for it. And and and. The, the marches weren't going too good. I mean, right. you know, yeah. I mean, not many people could go. People work, you know, they worked in factories and foundries. They worked as domestic help in mm-hmm. my old neighborhoods and uh, across. And, and all of a sudden they got the idea of the children. And the, the disc jockeys, Shelly the Playboy Stewart and Tall Paul White would go on and they would give the signals on the radio and they'd meet at 16th Street and it was the kids that hit the streets of Birmingham. And after a day or so, Bull Connor just got frantic. He, they, it was just tactically brilliant because they knew that Bull Connor could not help himself. He could not help himself. And so they, the next thing you know, you have visions uh, uh, all across the media of, you know, 15 and 16 years old getting tumbled like pressure washing down a sidewalk mm-hmm. with a fire hose mm-hmm. uh, and the dogs jumping on them. And all of a sudden now... The momentum starts to change, starts to change in a big way. And, and then, of course, they're, they're organizing at 16th Street. Organizing at 16th Street. That's the main focal point. Um, nonviolent. And they just go out in the street and you got Kelly Ingram Park right there. They were just going to walk about three blocks to City Hall. But 
they didn't get that far. They got in the street and into the park before the fire hoses and dogs got them. And 63, as you say, is so important. Yeah. Get- well, if you go from there, a couple of things happened. When they, when they did the settlement to end those marches, the cl- head of the Klan announced on TV that that very modest settlement, I mean, it was just literally taking down white and colored signs at the uh, at fa- uh, water fountains and restrooms in the downtown department stores, letting people sit t- together, letting the African-American ladies who ran the elevators. Yes, folks, you used to have to manually run an elevator, not hit a button. Um, they went on the floor and were sales clerks. That was a really big, yeah. th- the city would not hire black police officers. They, they refused. It was several years later. Uh, but even with that, uh, Robert Shelton, who was the head of the Klan, right. based in Tuscaloosa, said uh, it would be Dr. King's epitaph. And a bomb exploded that night at A.G. Gaston Motel, where he was staying. Fortunately, he had left. But two weeks later, a bomb explodes at his brother's home, A.D. King, who right. was preaching in Birmingham. Right. June 4th uh, was the stand in the schoolhouse door. Everybody knows about George Wallace's pledge, segregation now, segregation tomorrow, segregation forever. Right. Uh, and he stood at the schoolhouse door to block two kids from enrolling in the University of Alabama, Vivian Malone, James Hood. But he stepped aside. Mm-hmm. It was all staged. Mm-hmm. No, there was no way on God's green earth that he was the federal marshals were going to let him do. In fact, there's this incredible documentary called Crisis Behind a Presidential Commitment mm-hmm. that you need to see because it, it, it films Kennedy and all these things. And Bobby Kennedy is on the phone talking about literally picking the little governor up and moving him if they have to. <laughs> It's amazing. Um, and, and a little piece of trivia that a lot of folks may not know, but um, the female that was blocked, uh, Vivian Malone, um, they, later Vivian Malone Hood, became the first graduate, went on to teach at the University of Alabama. Her sister is a doctor in Washington, D.C., and her last name is Holder, and she's married to former Attorney General and my buddy, Eric yeah, Holt. That's great. Absolutely. Um, you had that. You had the uh, Medgar Evers murder, right. essentially the same night, yeah. I think, as exactly. that when President Kennedy is announcing the Civil Rights Movement, um, Civil Rights Bill. Uh, I have a dream speech in August. And then in August, also, the federal courts were ordering Birmingham schools desegregated. And five days before this bombing uh, is when the schools were desegregated for the first time. Five days. And then, of course, you had this, the bombing and then President Kennedy's assassination. Right. And this, this, this country completely, I think, I, I say that, the, I like to tell people, I think that the, the, the fire hoses and the dogs really shook people, but it was the bombing in Birmingham on September 15th that killed four little girls and kept, and, and it badly injured another, the, uh, Sarah, right. um, that really shocked the consciences of the world. We'd seen Emmett Till. We'd seen other racial um, uh, atrocities, terrorism. But four innocent children on a Sunday morning in a house of worship, the world changed. Another child died mm-hmm. that night, that day as well, two, right? Two children two. died. Right. And you tell that story in here. Yeah. Um, you know, you had, the, you had Cynthia, Addie, Carol, and Denise. Um, Addie's sister Sarah was badly injured. Um, by and large, Birmingham was a, a cauldron, but I think it due in large part to the ministers, and particularly the minister of 16th Street, uh, Reverend Cross, 
who got on the Sunday school steps and preached the Sunday, got on the big steps of the church that day after they were clearing everybody and there was a lot of rumbling, um, got on the steps of the church and preached the Sunday school lesson that morning, which was the love that forgives. And things kind of stayed relatively calm, but there were isolated incidences. And there were two in particular. There was uh, two young black men who were just riding on a bicycle. Uh, Virgil Ware was riding on the handlebars of his brother's bike. And two teenagers had been to a Klan rally that afternoon and decided that they were either going to kill him or scare him, one of the two. But it ended up firing a pistol that hit Virgil in the chest uh, and killed him. Um, about the same time in a different part of Birmingham, there was a young a group of young uh, uh, black teenagers who were uh, throwing rocks and doing some things they might not should have been doing, but they were all unarmed. Police came, rocks were thrown, a shot was fired, and Johnny Robinson was killed in the back, shot right. in the back as he was running away by a Birmingham police officer. Right. Um, those, are, those are two that often go unnoticed right. and, and overlooked. Uh, in Birmingham that day. So the bombing is in some ways is often read as a response to King's dream. Mm -hmm. And history touched you on the shoulder and conscripted you into uh, uh, taking on the task of of bringing some folks to justice who who weren't brought to justice. So we got to talk a little bit about that. But before we do, you wanted me to remind you about Baxley's letter. Oh, I got to tell you this story. Okay, you got to tell me this story. Before we get into this real serious stuff. (laughs) Baxley was an an incredible politician. I'm convinced he would have been a governor in 1978, but for that case. But for that case. He would have been Alabama's first (laughs) New South governor, with a term that I I think has gotten overused a lot. But he was an amazing guy, but he was always one to respond. He was always quick-witted. He was just very, he was, the, he was a true, authentic person as well. And he gets this letter. He, he's given me his file. He, 1970s, he got all manner of hate mail. Of course. I mean, from across the country, more so from outside Alabama, really, than inside. And one he got from was a guy named Ed Fields, who was head of the state's rights party that we talked about earlier. And he's over in Atlanta. He's a chiropractor. And he sends him this three-page letter, just ugly, just a diatribe, mm-hmm. calling him every name in the book, you know, questioning why he's persecuting these good white Anglo-Saxon Christian men, uh, said he was a disgrace to his race. You, know, you just name it. And so Baxley had pretty much had enough at that point. And so he wrote him a letter back. And I've got a, a, a copy of it. It's on, you know, the office of the attorney general and the great seal and it's golden boss and everything. He just said, Dear Dr. Fields, in response to your letter of February 10th, kiss my ass. <laughs> and, it, and, and we never got that. I was hoping I could get something like that. I, I really wanted to see Janet Reno's face when, 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 when her U.S. attorney did that. That's wonderful. That's wonderful. So he gets Chambliss, though. He gets Chambliss. Chambliss is convicted. He dies in prison. Um, there, there's another really great story that Chambliss's lawyer tells uh, about the day of the conviction because a lot of people didn't know at the time, but Chambliss's wife and her sister were informants. And they were giving information to both the police and to some extent the FBI. It was never going to be used in evidence because they were deep yeah. six. But, right. but these guys were hate. I mean, they, they, were, they were abusers as well. And Chambliss was a really 
mean, mean man to the core. And his wife, T, was, um, was there. She never went to the trial. And Art Haynes Jr., who, who later, he's, Art represented, he and his dad represented, but he, Art was a great guy, later became my Louise Sunday school teacher. Uh, but he, went, he was tasked with going to tell Miss Chambliss that Bob had been convicted and wasn't coming home. And he walks in there, uh, she knocks on the door, and she's in the back little den laying on the sofa with a washcloth, and the blinds are drawn, everything's dark. He said, Miss T, I got bad news. Bob's been convicted, and uh, they've taken him into custody. And she says, he's not coming home? She said, he said, no, ma'am, uh, we're going to, he, he, he's not eligible for bond. We're going to appeal what's not good. She says, so he's never coming home? <laughs> and he said, no, ma'am. And Hart just didn't get it at the, what she was signaling. And finally, after about three times, he said, no, I, I, I think we just need to get his things together because he's never, we feel good about the appeal, but, but the odds are he, he, it's going to get, this conviction is going to get confirmed, uh, affirmed and he won't come home. He said she threw off that, that washcloth open sash going, glory, hallelujah, thank you, thank you, Jesus. <laughs> I mean, that's just a great story. Now, the book is full of those sorts of stories, by the way. Yeah. So Chambliss, Blatton, Cherry, these are, the three, these are the three characters underneath that bridge. Underneath the bridge. Yeah, they, they, would, they, they were all Eastview 13 members, but they would leave and they would go just south of Birmingham. There's a beautiful little river, the Cahaba River, really mm-hmm. pristine little river. And the bridge, they would meet underneath that bridge. There were a lot of informants in the Klan. People didn't realize that. And so they didn't trust anybody. And they would meet under this bridge, and that's where we had a ton of evidence that there, the bomb plot was hatched. I, I think the actual bomb maker probably was, was not one of these guys, lived in that area near Cahaba Heights. And that's where they would meet, and uh, we had informant testimony about that. We called them the trolls mm. under the, underneath the bridge because right. that's what they were. Right. So, Maxley gets Chambers, mm-hmm. and Doug Jones looks up, and it's in your lap. Yeah. To go after Blanton and Cherry. Now, you folks, the story in the book is is detailed in every way, shape, form, or fashion. But I tell you, it won't sound as good coming with a, sac- a southern accent. So, <laughs> so you have to tell us this story about, tell us the story as best you can about Blanton and Cherry, how you mustered the courage and the energy, because it had to be courageous you know, to do I, it. I, I appreciate that, but I, I've, ne- I've never considered that uh, courageous. Never. No one on my team has considered that anything that we did as an act of courage. Uh, we f- we had jobs, we had responsibilities, we had duties, and we all felt it. I mean, we felt a little bit of the weight of history, even though we tried to downplay the history during this. You know, it was a group of middle-aged white folks who were doing this, who knew that this system of justice that we were working in and we were so proud of had let so many people down. Because the black community is murmuring oh, the whole yeah. time. They think the whole thing is a sham. Well, right? they, I, I don't know if they think it's a sham as much as they think well, nothing will come. Nothing. Nothing will come. And we had seen some successes in Mississippi. Uh, Byron Day LeBeckwith had been convicted for the murder of Medgar Evers. Sam Bowers had been convicted for the murder of Vernon Damer. And so there was hope. And, you know, a new FBI agent came into Birmingham, long story, right. but there was a lot of dissension between the black community and the Department of Justice. Rightly so. In, in the 90s, <laughs> at, rightly so. And, um, 
And so he was trying to make some amends and, and ministers he met with said, you, we'd like for you to look at the, the church bombing. And he did. He reopened it. And, and it, it had gotten reopened about the time that I became, well, a, a number of months ahead of time. It stayed below, but it became public right before I became the U.S. attorney. Louise had been asking me, well, my, my law practice was good. She said, why do you why do you want to go back? We're doing pretty good and the law practice is going good. And why do you want to go back and, and have a government job? You know, <laughs> Louise is asking questions. Yeah. All the time and we, we've got, you know, daughter is, you know, nine or 10 or something. And, and, you know, Carson is, is just been born. And it was a, it was hard to answer. And then I see in the paper one morning when she's fixing breakfast for the kids and I go out and I pick up the paper and I see, where it's happened, where it's opened. And it's just like, holy cow. Yeah, right. And I, t- I show it to her and, and tell her, and she's, you know, she didn't really know my history as much with the McNair family right. and watching the cases. And uh, she said, oh man, I, I, I hope they can, I hope they can get these guys. I said, you don't understand. It's my case. That's now I know why I wanted to go back into this office. Wow. And we had an, an amazing team. That really, you know, they went through every single piece of paper more than once. The case files were still in the uh, Birmingham offices. And there were interviews after interview after interview. There was, we had three sets of files. There was the case file. uh, It was called BAP Bomb. That was the Mm -hmm. FBI nomenclature. Then you had a file that was general informant files and um, uh, on the individuals, you know, and then you had, they were informant files. Those that, that were, were informants to the FBI. But then at that point, the FBI was just keeping files on people. Now they say they ain't doing that anymore. <laughs> just saying. <laughs> but, but you, so we had three sets of files uh, to go through and it was pretty. And so you know, when I first sat down with the agents to talk to them about it, and then it was kind of like, all right, let me tell you, we got good news and bad news. The good news is here is a list of people. We've already interviewed some family members. We, these people are still alive. We know where to talk to them. We can go talk to them. Here's the bad news. Here are the people that are dead. And that list is longer than the other list. And so time was running out and we knew we had a, a lot to do. Unfortunately, you know, Five months after I'm in um, in office, a bomb explodes at a women's clinic. Eric Rudolph yeah, right. killed a Birmingham police officer, ki- uh, badly injured a nurse. Now, what year is this? So people this is this. 1998. I right. became U.S. attorney in September of 97, and late January 98 is when that bomb exploded And as, as I'm going into the office. And that just shut the church bombing case down for a while. It was just intense. And at that time, nobody knew who Eric Rudolph was. They had been investigating the 96 bombing of Olympic Park and a gay nightclub and a women's clinic in Atlanta. Right. And they had done an amazing job. They had 400,000 names in their database. But Eric Rudolph's wasn't there. And it, it, it's a separate remarkable story that I'm going to tell real quick because it's just, you know, it, let me tell you, in these cases as well as the others, Sometimes you can work hard and you be dedicated, but things just have to line up. Right. You just, you know, little it, luck. You, it's either it's it's luck, it's an act of God. You whatever you want to say, it falls in. The Rudolph case is probably even the best example because that bomb exploded about seven thirty 
uh, just on the edge of the University of Alabama and Birmingham campus where that women's clinic was. There was a young African-American right. freshman yeah. who was doing his laundry on the first floor right. of the dorm, heard it, looked out, saw the kind of smoke and all, and people starting rushing toward the clinic except for one guy who was walking hurriedly away in what he thought was wearing a disguise. And this kid left his phone and went out and tracked him down and, and looked for him, saw right. him, went over the hill, lost him, got to a McDonald's uh, over the mountain, was calling 911 when Rudolph comes walking down the, the way, and this kid's going ballistic on the, on the... He said, oh, my God, there he is, there he is. There's a lawyer having breakfast and starts relaying exactly what he's wearing. Rudolph jumps in the woods. Those two guys get in their cars and go and look, and they see Rudolph in the car. They pull up behind him. They get, he gets in the car. The lawyer pulls up behind Rudolph, writes the tag number of the truck on a McDonald's coffee cup, and, and the young uh, uh, student looks over, eyeballs Rudolph. Rudolph gets on the interstate, and he's gone for five years. But, but without those yes. two, right. unbelievable that, that two people could do that and have the where for all to do that. Rudolph would have killed again. Mm-hmm. Would, he would have absolutely killed again. So I d- digress from, but that is in there. That's in there. That is in it's there. In there. <laughs> it's, it, it's a, cause it really is a part of me too. It was, but it's, yeah. it's really fascinating though, because I mean, look, we're talking, the bombing happens in 1963. Right. This is 1990. Yeah, it's, right. it's so, as Yogi said, deja vu all over again. Deja vu all over again. Yeah. So you have the case in you, and you have the case now. You, you've assembled your team, right? and now it's the time to get to work. Because these guys are some mean, I, they come, they're moral monsters. Oh, Blanton is very different from Cherry, but, yes. but, but they're moral but monsters. They're, so but quickly they, tell us the story about, about that. Well, Blanton, Blanton was, uh, he lived like a hermit. I mean, he was to himself... Um, Married his alibi witness, Jean. On purpose. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Married her, and when Baxley, when Hoover closed out the files in 68, they got divorced. When Baxley, when Baxley reopened it, they got remarried. Exactly. Baxley left the office, they got divorced again. Exactly. True story. And you have a wonderful uh, imitation of oh, her. Oh, yeah, no, no, she's, she's something else. And, but, but he really kept to himself, and, and we really had a difficult time in the Blanton case because it was so circumstantial. Blanton's car had been seen about 2 o'clock in the morning, uh, the, night, the morning of the bombing, on Sunday morning, September 15th. His car, there was a lady named Mrs. Glenn who was visiting from Detroit, and she had been out on the town with a friend. She's coming in to park, and she sees Blanton's 1957 Chevy uh, about a block from the church. And... Dome lights on. She identifies Chambliss as one of the three people in the in the car. Mm. She later identifies the car to the FBI. She was a critical witness in the in the Chambliss case that Baxley prosecuted. They found she was at home in in Michigan when they found her. She refused to come to, back to Alabama to testify. Mm. Baxley went up there three times, and she said, "I ain't coming to Alabama." She said, "I'm telling you, I ain't coming. I wouldn't even let my body fly over there if." You know, she said, I'm not coming. And they ended up getting Rosa Parks and Martin Luther King's lawyer, Fred Gray, to go visit with her because Baxley had seen a Jet magazine with Fred's picture right. next to Rosa Parks. Right. And so he got Fred up there and Miss, Miss Glenn, he walked in and she looked at him and she put that magazine right up next to his face. <laughs> she said, it is you. And she came down. <laughs> 
she had passed away, but that was a critical piece as well as there was a, a, a fellow named James Lay who was a civil right. defense volunteer. Right. Right. James Lay worked at the post office, but he was part of a group of, of black men who would, would leave their jobs, and at night they would try to protect the homes of the civil rights leaders and churches and, and, and places. Two weeks before the bombing, he's driving down 16th Street mm-hmm. at 1 o'clock in the morning, and he sees uh, two men. He sees two, two men, one standing by a car, the other standing over by the steps where the bomb was placed. And he hits his bright lights, and the guy by the steps is holding what Mr. Lay called a grip, gym bag or something. They jump in the car, and they leave. Uh, they call the police. Please tell them, just going home, boy, you didn't see a damn thing. Uh-huh. Boy was the name given to all black men, regardless of age, by the Birmingham police. Two weeks later, he's out and sees the bombing, uh, or hears the bombing. He's a few blocks away. Helps remove the bodies, tells the police and the FBI what he saw, identifies two people, uh, Chambliss at the car, Blanton by the steps. Incredible guy, just an amazing guy, very soft-spoken. We thought you know, he was going to be the, the, the witness that carries the day. He ends up having a stroke right before trial. Um, so we, Cherry is a lot different. Cherry runs his mouth. I tell people that exactly. he was the consummate liar. And they say, how do you know? I say, well, he was opening his mouth. <laughs> Every time he Sounds opened familiar. his... Yeah. <laughs> no, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> I don't want to get you in trouble. All so. right, next question. <laughs> um... But, Cherry, but that was his downfall. Mm-hmm. I mean, Cherry had so many lies, inconsistent statements. He started making stuff up, and we were able to document that. It's all laid out there uh, in, right. the, in, the, in the trial because we had agents that came back and talked about the inconsistencies. We had him talking about, you know, just making up where he was that weekend. Said he was um, um, at the sign shop. Modern sign shop was another gathering spot in right. addition to the to the uh, uh, river, and he was there. We couldn't lie about that because we had too many people that put him there. But he said he went home at 10 o'clock at night because his poor wife was dying with cancer, and he had to set her up. Now, forget the fact that he's out making anti-integration signs while his wife's dying with cancer, and, and he wanted to go home only not to help her but to see live studio wrestling, which started at 10 o'clock, he said. Well, we were able to prove that live studio wrestling didn't start until at, at – 10 o'clock at night on, on, a, on a Friday or Saturday night, Saturday night, until a year after the bombing. Yes. And, and poor Mrs. Cherry, she did ultimately die of cancer, but she wasn't even diagnosed with cancer until 1965, two years after the bomb. Right. So his lies uh, and admissions to people, I mean, w- were what got him. He called a press conference after he was first interviewed. Right, that's a great moment. In, in 1997, our agents went out there. It was right before I became U.S. attorney. They went out to Texas where he was living, and they interviewed him for four hours. He said some things we used. He admitted being part of a group that, that attacked Fred Shuttlesworth in 1957, and we found that tape of that, a video that we played. But afterwards, when he, afterwards he called a press conference, and it was incredible. He, I mean, he got a lawyer, and the lawyer let him call a press conference. If there are any lawyers here, <laughs> do not let your client talk to the media because they immediately, they, they, yeah, uh, yeah. I, I mean, it was shown in Texas and Birmingham and phones started ringing. First, first person to call was his granddaughter. Right. Let me tell you about my uh, grandfather. She was estranged from the family. 
But she Who talked about molested. he would. Yes. And she talked about him bragging about it after Sunday dinners. We, uh, you know, an ex-wife called us out of the blue. We couldn't find her. Uh, uh, Willadine, yeah. FBI, been looking for her. Couldn't find her at all. And and she called from Montana, and and said, "I know something about it," and talked about um, this. We're running late, aren't we? I know we are. No, we're um, just, they're just giving me these questions. Okay. And um, so his his lies really were what um, set that apart. The Blanton. We went to trial with Blanton first because we were going to try them both. They were both indicted in at the same time in May of two thousand. Cherry feigned dementia, uh, and we at the last minute, he feigned dementia, and so we had to separate the trials. We tried Blanton first in April of 2001, and it was, and again, talking about things lining up, when I, when I was a kid watching Bill Baxley give a closing argument, right. it was on a day on November the 24th, 1977, that would have been Denise McNair's 26th birthday. And he talked about that. He talked about the fact that it would be her birthday, but there were no parties. There was no, there were no grandchildren. There was no, no profession. And, but, but that the jury had an opportunity to give Denise what she hadn't had for some 14 years, and that's justice. Bring her killer to justice. It was a remarkable closing argument. As fate would have it for us, we did, I did my opening statement and called my first witness, or one of my first witnesses, Alpha Robertson, on a day that would have been Carol Robertson's 51st birthday. And you talk about a powerful moment to have Miss Robertson testifying about her child's death 37 years earlier on a day that was her birthday. Mm-hmm. It, was, it was a remarkable moment uh, in the court. So there's so much more to talk about with regards to the cases, uh, but you have to read the book. Um, then there's the third portion of the text, the third movement of the book. And this is your ascendance to the Senate. There's a story about the relationship between the past and the present mm-hmm. that you tell. Give us, give us a sense of why you wanted, why this moment that you played, you played such a historical role in, historic role in, in bringing these folks to justice. Why, how does it inform and shape? How did it inform and shape your run for the Senate? Well, in this moment, generally, it, it really was a remarkable. T- when we got those convictions, I just, you know, we'd, we'd known the history and you realize, but I don't think I fully appreciated how much it meant to so many people to finally bring uh, some uh, healing. I don't use the term closure about these, I use the term healing because you don't want to close these chapters. You just want to heal over them a little bit, but you always want to remember them. And I started speaking about the cases uh, everywhere. Uh, I've been up here a couple of times. I've been all over the country. Baxley and I do yeah, some of those together. Exactly. And uh, everywhere we go, people wanted to talk about it. They wanted to hear it. They wanted, they wanted to come just touch that history a little bit as well. And that really, as, as much as watching Bill and the trials themselves, seeing people and talking to people and hearing their reactions also shaped me. Um, I think I write in there that, you know, I probably grew more in the last 20 years than I've done, did the first 40, Hmm. because there was so much, as we said, that was protected and sheltered. And all of a sudden it was now condensed and and coming home. And and so we really were seeing changes in Birmingham for so long. Incidences like this and across the South were swept under the carpet. You didn't talk about them. And then 
that changed. And we started, we've got a civil rights institute. We've got right. the lynching memorial now in, in Montgomery. We've got, and in, 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 in Alabama, it's one of the top tourist attractions to come through the civil rights trail, oh, yeah. you know, to learn. And it's unvarnished. I mean, they don't try to sugarcoat uh, Birmingham's a role in any of that. And I think that as things changed, the political dynamic was also shifting, though, and it was shifting away from those, uh, I think, voting rights and civil rights the, with, with, a, uh, with Shelby County versus Holder right. and all of those things that try to suppress the right to vote. Immigration issues became, it was no longer just simply a black and white issue. It was immigration. It was gay rights. It was disability rights. It was, it's so much was spurned from that civil rights movement, I believe. Mm. And, you know, that all becomes part of it, of making sure everybody is treated equally and with mm-hmm. dignity and with, and with respect. And that's what we've, we try to do. And so, you know, I was out of the, out of the real political fray for a long time, but was working in the, the various campaigns and doing things. <laughs> But it wasn't until 2016 and the kids were going to college and we were finally getting empty nesters and enjoying life that we also decided, uh, Louise and I did, that we got to get engaged because we had seen so much where especially folks in the South and the Democratic Party in the South had just placated, you know, and tried to pander a little bit and be Republican light. And they didn't talk about the issues that really meant those kitchen table issues that we talked about. Right. And it was time to step up. It's funny. Uh, Louise wants to, you, there, there are moments in the story that were, you know, he was thinking about running for governor and, and, and said, we have to move to Montgomery. And she goes, Montgomery? <laughs> Montgomery. And then there's, of course, the, the, the ongoing desire to go to the Bahamas on a regular basis yes, with her yes, friends. Yes. With her friends. So this is, this is a family decision in some ways. But you say Republican light. What do you mean? Well, I mean Republican you know, light. What is that? It, 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 is, it is trying to cling to power because Democrats control so much of the South. And, in, and, and when things started to change, rather than being who they were, they tried to be who they perceived was winning elections. And who was winning some elections and different things were were folks that were um, trying to suppress voting rights, anti-immigration. In 2010 in Alabama, uh, Democrats ran more anti-immigration ads than Republicans did. Wow. It was it was there was some and they were stark. Some of them were really ugly. And it was but it was a cling to power. And what you realize is that so many people that are running for office or in office are there just for themselves and the egos and clinging to that power was more important. I mean, they would sell their soul Mm. to some extent in order to try to maintain an office. And it was time. I just seen it happen. Now, now having said that there were make no mistake, there were individuals in the South that you saw that would do those kind of things. And that would, that would, would step up. Uh, They would often get drowned out. Uh, but in this special election in December 17, we had a unique opportunity because no one was expecting us to win. Uh, all the pundits were saying, even t- even with the opponent that I had, they were saying that I was not going to win. Yes. Yes. I said it. I said it. <laughs> I was... I was on Morning Joe, and, and, and yeah. we were we were working it out. You know, yeah. I no, don't it, think the numbers. Yeah, but 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 that's a little liberating, 
you know, yeah. when you when you when you were there, and I and we talked about it. Louise and I talked about it early on when the decision was made. We do this. We said we're only going to do this. Number one, if we maintain who we are and be true to ourselves, and and not let a consultant come in and tell me, oh Doug, oh we're so close. If you could just if we could just film a commercial at your gun case or walking out of church with your gun, we would we could we could do this. <laughs> And I said, I said we, we're not going to do that. We are going to maintain who we are, stick to our issues. You think I'm kidding? We've had those. Um, and, and, that's, and so, so it was an opportunity to win. We had a path to victory. We right. saw the path right. to victory. Uh, and that was our goal. Um, our goal was to win that election. But our objective was to build something in, uh, in, in Alabama and across the South where people could stand up and speak out. I, as I read the book, and, and we've got to go to your questions because there's some really great questions here, um, I thought that there was, some, there was reading about your campaign, emphasizing kitchen, kitchen table mm-hmm. issues, uh, deciding not to go after Roy Moore right. in any negative way, even, even when his heinous right. behavior in, in, what's the mall? Gadsden Mall. Gadsden Mall came to the fore. Um, you, you didn't want, because you knew it would activate his base in a particular yeah, we, sort of way. We, I, we, the people that were closest in the campaign, the, the young kids on the staff, they were just dancing on tables. They thought we, this, this was over. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we were all, no, no, no. This is about to get tribal. We're going to have more people. There's going to be more focus. And it's going to pull people out. And, and so we had to very carefully stay with that. I knew I was going to get asked about it. I would hit the highlights. Right. And I would move right back. I right. would just pivot right back. To what I wanted to talk about of the issue of the day. Mm-hmm. It was not easy. No, because that, that time when you gave that speech where you finally let yourself go oh, and you went yeah. at him, you, you were pretty oh, happy I, about I, that. I, I quit reading the news. Mm-hmm. I quit watching television about any of it, uh, except some of the late night talk shows. That was kind of fun to watch. <laughs> um, but I, I, I just quit doing that. Mm-hmm. And, and poor Louise, she's a news junkie. And I'd be sitting in the den trying to read and She'd have the, you know, the TV on in the kitchen. I'd say, honey, turn it down. I can still hear it. <laughs> but, but I had to maintain that focus. Yeah, yeah. I just couldn't get distracted because if you got into that, then, then I wanted to make sure that those people who felt that way, they still had something that they could look to mm-hmm. um, and turn to of substance right. and not just, oh, you know, vote against him and for me. And, and we did, I think, a re- pretty remark, except for that closing argument. And I finally, I, t- I told the staff, I'm going to give one speech. And it's going to be, a cl- it's, if I don't do a closing argument about why that they should vote for me and against this guy, then, and I lose this race, I will never forgive myself. Right. So I just, the one time, you lit I, into I did it and I lit into him and I, and I, and I hammered it home. Yes, I really did. You sure did. So, so I, I always I was going to say that I look to your campaign and I look to Stacey Abrams' campaign. Both of those campaigns offer a kind of pathway oh, uh, to, so. the, to the National Party because, in some ways, both of you insisted, and you before Stacey, of course, insisted on being yourself. Yes, of not trying to morph into anything or anyone that you weren't. And the strategy was to expand the electorate. To bring more people into the fold, right? To give them, you know, to give democracy a chance. Talk a little bit about that, and then well, we'll go to the question. No, that was exactly right. That we, we wanted more people engaged. Um, people, because because when when we when I first announced in May of 2017, as I would go around uh, the state, 
So many people from all walks of life, male, female, young and old, black and white, you name it. The word that we heard most was thank you. Thank you for doing this because all of a sudden now there were a lot of people that had a voice that they had not had. And I thought that was critical. Not all of my voice was not going to, uh, people weren't going to agree with everything I said. But if we could talk and have dialogues instead of monologues, we could win a lot of people over. Mm-hmm. And I think we did that. I think Stacy did that. Mm-hmm. And um, I think she brought, it was not, it was, it was a question of expanding the base, but it was also a question of people, you know, everybody says, oh, these are red states, red states. Well, they're only looking at results. And they're not looking at somebody's heart and what they're really thinking about. And if they've not been given any choices, and, and I don't think we have in the South a lot of times been given any real choices. If you give people choices and get them to think about issues, perhaps they can move about away from issues that are so divisive. Now, some people are not. Right. They are not going to move off of those divisive issues. Uh, and that's, that's okay. Mm-hmm. I understand that. Mm-hmm. I don't, don't understand some of it, but I, I get it. But if you can not just expand and register people and reach out, you can go into those areas with people that have traditionally voted a different way and win them over because what you want at the end of the day is for to sit down like we're sitting now and for them to walk away saying, you know, this guy has got my back. Right, Regardless right. of what's going on, this guy's got my back. Yeah, there's, there's a wonderful story uh, in, in the text about, about you, you were doing research at an at Alabama LSU game. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you were doing. He was research. doing research at Alabama, <laughs> and you were in the elevator. And a woman who was obviously Republican turned behind and turned to you and, and asked you if you were a All Democrat. Right. And what did she say? How did it go? You All can right. you can say it. If y'all if y'all if y'all excuse the profanity, it wasn't mine. I never. <laughs> Louise and I, our great friends, uh, my childhood friend Fred Metz and Sophia were up there, and we'd gone to the LSU game, and was doing research. But you got to understand the Alabama LSU game. There's 110,000 people in the stands, and another 100,000 people outside. I can't get anywhere. There's a more concentrated group of voters. Which Doug Jones with my Doug Jones for Senate, and we yeah. get on, and my seats are up in a special area, and we we take an elevator, and we get our little wristbands, and we had on our 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 buttons, and I get on the back corner of the elevator, and there's this lady that walks in. It's very crowded, and she walks in, and and she clearly was not the demographic voter that <laughs> I felt like I had a, early on a chance for. And, and, and this, this guy was talking to me because he said, I'm, I'm from Huntsville, I'm a Republican, but I'm voting for you. We heard that so much. And so we were talking, when we quit, she just looked at me, and she said, are you Doug? I said, yes, ma'am. Very polite in the South. <laughs> and she said, you asked the $64,000 question, the tribal question. Are you a Republican or Democrat? Didn't want to know my, what I stood for. Mm-hmm. Didn't want to know anything. Are you a Republican or Democrat? I said, well, I'm a Democrat. And she goes, God, just grumbled and literally turned her back to me in the elevator. Everybody on the elevator is listening to all this, and they're looking at their shoes. Um, and I just leaned over and showed her. I said, ma'am, do you know who I, the Republican is I'm running against? She said, no. I said, it's Roy Moore. And she goes, Shit. <laughs> I walked, while we're walking out of that, I looked at Louise. I said, honey, get ready. I think we got, got this. this. I, know. 
and that was that was before that exactly. was before the allegation. Exactly. Yeah. So let's go to some. Isn't that a wonderful story? Yeah, it's a wonderful story. So let's go to some of the questions right quick. As okay. we, so you talk one one person asked a history teacher uh, in Brooklyn and from Mobile. Mm-hmm. Uh, she she says you talk about an experience in school about a debate about what happened at Kent State opening your heart and mind to another way of thinking. What kind of experiences do you think should exist in schools or in our education system to help create more open heart, hearts wow. and critical thinking in places like Alabama and the United States? That's a great question, isn't it? Um, and, and maybe one of the toughest questions to answer that we have, if we could find the answer to that, I don't know if we would be having the kind of problems that we have in this country today. Um, you know, oftentimes in the 60s, um, the teachers didn't do that, mm-hmm. and they kept minds closed. Uh, and I think just the debate, you know, I always go back, um, I always go back to, to Kill a Mockingbird. I always repeat this. If teachers and parents can convince their kids um, to follow what Atticus Finch said and just walk around in someone else's shoes and see things from their point of view, that's what we don't do enough of. And it's, it's, it's going to be a special challenge now, even more so than then because of social media and the fact that we all stay in our silos. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that the history of the civil rights movement is, is taught as much as it should, should be. Um, you hear the top lines about Martin Luther King and the top line about Rosa Parks, but you don't hear about Fred Shuttlesworth and you don't hear as much about Andrew Young. You don't hear as much about James James Bevel and Diane Nash, who were the real architects Mm. of the Selma to Montgomery March Mm. uh, and of the children's movement. You hear about John Lewis some because he's still so active, but even then you just know he got beat up on a bridge and you don't know why. And there, I think that, you know, there's teachers that come to Birmingham all the time and they spend a week there. And I've talked to a lot of them and they come back with a different sense. And I think if we could teach that, um, the Facing History uh, and ourselves has a program called Teaching Tolerance. Um, I think we just have to, we have to force kids to get outside their comfort zone. Mm. Um, I, I will give you something that happened in our hometown uh, a few years ago. On the 50th anniversary of the publication of To Kill a Mockingbird, um, the Mount Brook High School, where my kids all went, where we live, is essentially all white. There are some African-American kids in that school, but not many. Mm -hmm. They wanted to do the play, but they didn't have enough black kids to really in their drama department to do that. So they teamed up with Fairfield High School, which is where I went as a kid, which is now all black. And together, those kids put on To Kill a Mockingbird. It got national attention. They were up here on the Today Show. Um, And to listen to those kids uh, and talk to those kids after having spent that time and understanding that play was remarkable. And if we could get more kids to get outside their comfort zones. And that's hard to do, I think, for teachers because you've got a set amount of time but there's some programs that I think we're looking. Teachers, I, I, I'm hoping this Teachers Are Leaders Act that, that a, a few of us have in there that will give some resources for teachers to do more than just teach a class, but to be leaders in their community uh, and to do things like that. I hope we can do that because it's, stepping outside the comfort zone, I think, is, is the, 
is, is absolutely critical. All too often we're mysteries to each other. And we, yes. We sit right next to each no other. No question. Here's one right here. I'm a Mobilian. I'm all, all these folks from Mobile's here. Lord. Mobile's in the house. Now living. That's right next to my, my stomping grounds. I'm, I'm a Mobilian now living in Connecticut. How do you take care of yourself against the pressures you must be getting from Republican Alabamians? who do not want you to represent them with the progressive agenda that will force change. My adult sons who live in Alabama are still feeling the stress of your election. Oh, yeah. Wow. Yeah. No, you got it, people stressed out, Senator. It, 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 yeah. And, and so Louise is looking down at me and saying, yeah, honey, how do you take care of yourself? Um, you know, look, I, I, I approach this job um, with, first of all, every day. Um, you know, I just pinch myself that I'm there every day is a, I I get up and I'm thinking it's early and I don't really want to get up. But the minute I get into that office and start rolling, the adrenaline starts pumping. I just enjoy it. I am in my old boss's seat. You're in Howard Heflin's seat. I'm in Howard Heflin's seat. I worked there in the Senate for Judge Heflin for a year. Uh, He was such a great mentor to me. And so it's just, it, you just, I, I love meeting the people. And I, you know, I just, I just have enough faith in, in people. I know that when I sit down with a group that I can win some of those folks over by just being who I am and talking to them because they just haven't always had that. They've had somebody that might pander to them. They had somebody that might not give them the time of day. Um, I'll give you a, a quick story about that. Um, recently, I was meeting, and I won't say where this group was coming from in the state, but it was a, a business leaders. It was a group because now it's the fly-in season. And they were scheduled for a meeting with me. Pretty real conservative area of the state. We get this email from uh, the leader of the group saying that the group had met and decided that they would not do it because it, they didn't want to waste my time or theirs because wow. um, I didn't represent their the, – our core values were different. And I thought, okay. These, these are folks that are coming to talk about economic development. They want infrastructure. And so I just sent them a nice email. I said, look, I, I understand, but, you know, I don't know really what you're talking about. I've worked to do this for your area. I've done this. I've done that. And by the way, I come from a working class family. I've been going to church all my life. And so I'm not really sure what core values you really wanted to talk about. But this is still open for you if you want to come talk. And they did. And then when they did, we talked about those things important. I don't know if any of them around there will ultimately vote for me, but that's not wasn't the point. The point was they represented people in their area that they needed United States senators help on. And we we get divided like that. So I do things like that and I try to not engage anybody um, in arguments at all. I just go. I'm pretty wound up sometimes. But I, I'll just go beat my head up against the wall, and then I'll go on. I hear you. I hear you. That's great. You're going to love this question. Yeah. After Blanton's conviction, Bill Baxley wrote an op-ed for the New York Times charging that the FBI withheld evidence that could have convicted the bombers for decades. In your book, you characterize the article as a tirade. Did you ever discuss this with Baxley? Did he get it right? pretty odd. Uh, yeah. Um, I discussed it with him after the fact. It surprised us all. But uh, Bill was an incredible supporter. One of the first calls I got was from him uh, congratulating us. He was so happy. Um, 
But when he saw the evidence that we had, which was some things in that file, uh, he was he he felt like Mitchell Burns, who was the informant who had re- recorded so many of the Blanton tapes, um, undercover stuff. They had withheld that information. The kitchen tape that we used with mm-hmm. Blanton and his then wife Jean. We didn't even find that tape until after we'd indicted the cases. So Bill was not happy about that, and he, he, he felt like it. And, and I think he was right. He was certainly right to be upset with the powers that be at the FBI. Although when I called him, I said, Bill, you need, you need to remember something that you, you conveniently kind of forget. You, because Bill was a really progressive, young, energetic uh, attorney general, very progressive for his day, as I said earlier. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this, at the same time he was elected as attorney general, George Wallace was reelected for his third time. And well, let's see, second time, because his wife had been elected in 66. And he won an ugly race baiting election. Right. And it was, it was interesting that Bill had won. I said, these guys weren't going to trust you, state of Alabama. They're not going to. He said, well, okay, I get that. Um, but I'm still mad. <laughs> um, but. I think it would have been even even with the evidence that was withheld. I think it would have still been very t- difficult you think it was still for him to difficult? get a, a, a conviction. He probably he might very well have gotten one on Blanton, not on Cherry, because we re- really with Cherry there were the admissions that were made by different people he had come into contact with over the years mm-hmm. in which he bragged about it that really sealed his fate mm-hmm. as much as anything. Blanton, it would have been a, 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 a close call. He might could have with Blanton. So here's one that takes us to the current moment. Why, in your view, has the Democratic Party brand become so toxic to Southern whites of all social classes? And where do you see the most promising openings today? That's a good question. Yeah, I think uh, for a long time, the Democrats tried to um, be Republican light and they let them get they let themselves get branded and labeled by their opponents. And they did it on all these social issues that played on people's fears, um, whether it was civil rights, uh, whether it was gay rights, you name it, uh, whether it was abortion, guns, all of those issues which were not kitchen table type issues mm-hmm. at all. And Democrats dis- did not respond. They thought, I, I think they felt like, well, we can always rely on what we did in the 1930s with Franklin D. Roosevelt. And that'll carry the day. Well, it, it wasn't. And I think the, the other side really was able to exploit those fears. So much, I think, of p- political uh, votes these days are driven by fear. Uh, as much as anything, and there is nowhere in the, but the South. I mean, more important than that was in the South. Right. Fear George Wallace did it, and they were all Democrats at the time, and then they all became Republicans. And then you let this division and 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 in clinging to power, Democrats failed to respond of who they really are. They refused to go into the rural areas of America and really talk to people and listen about those fears and why it was important that they give a vision for helping raise their minimum wage, helping raise their living conditions. Those folks forgot that, were, that it was Democrats who, who brought uh, the minimum wage, who brought the 40-hour work week, who brought those kind of things to them that gave them those opportunities. And instead, 
we tried to, 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 to go a different route in those issues that we were going to lose on. And we've, we've been bringing those back now. I think Stacy did it. SB did it. I, you know, and, and we're not going to win all of those. And we did it. Uh, you're not going to win all those races. But as we talked about, so many of the divisions in this country clearly started in the South. And you'll go back to the three-fifths compromise mm-hmm. and then and slavery and the Civil War. But with the changing South now, we've got a, an opportunity to be the leader of the healers if, if we'll take that mantle and do it and try to make sure you pull people in on both sides and just say, okay, I get you. But let's just sit down here because compromise is not a battle lost. It is a way of progress, I, I believe. Uh, we just have to try to figure out the best way to you do it. You use a phrase in the book, um, you use this phrase, radical middle. Yeah. What does that mean? Well, it, it, I don't it, know what that means. Uh, well, you're looking at it. <laughs> um, I, I, the way the way I see that is that right now, um, it, between social media and mainstream media, it seems that the far right and the far left get most of the of the play and the airtime, and so those of us that are in the middle and the moderate voices um, tend to be the, the radical ones to try to do something different. You know, too many times you see checklist political figures. You're, you're either a checklist on the right. And you got to check all the boxes in order to get that vote. Or you're a checklist on the left. And the, and the radical middle is, is there saying, no, 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 no. We're going to take a check mark here and a check mark there. And we're going to try to pull people together. And to not compromise principles, but you've got to be able to compromise procedures and how things get done. Mm. And that's what I think. And I think it is becoming, a, and I think you're going to see it a little bit more, hopefully, in the 2020 election, where, where those voices are important. They're important voices. Make no mistake, the right and the left are important voices. As much as I disagree with folks on the right, they're important vo- vo- voices um, that need to be heard because there is, there, we, we all, at the end of the day, I, I represent a very diverse state, and I try to represent everybody, mm. but I'm not going to make everybody happy. And, in fact, I'm probably going to make everybody a little bit uneasy because I'm not going to be a checklist here or a checklist there, and I'm not doing things just simply to put my finger to the wind and see right. which way the political wind's blowing. And I think that's the radical middle of the people that don't do that. Okay. And they're the ones that just step out and do what they think is in their heart and the right thing. Okay, I think this and, is... And by the way, yes. I don't want anybody to think that the folks on the left don't do what they think is in their heart and the right thing. Not at all. But I just think that that you've got to pull this in because we... In my view, and it's just solely my view, folks, to effectively govern, you've got to govern more in the middle than you do on either either side of the political. Yeah, we're gonna have to argue about that one. But I'm just I'm just kidding. I'm just I'm just kidding. But I think this is a good question to to, to end with, right? Um, Someone asks, uh, Senator Jones, you are up for re-election in 2020. Please tell us about your chances for re-election. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it, look, it'll be a tough race. Everybody knows that. It's going to be a presidential race. There's going to be a lot of people voting, a lot more people that voted, that will vote in this election they need, than they did in 2017. 
Um, but I believe our chances are very good because we are doing those things in, um, uh, to one, um, to make sure that those people that voted for me, that I don't let them down and I keep them energized. Uh, to vote for us. And I think we're doing a pretty good job of that. They're, like I say, they're all not happy mm-hmm. with every vote I cast. Um, but by and large, they are pretty happy with what they've got. And they know that they've got a voice as a whole. They've, they've, they've got a voice. So we're going to do that. But we're also going to focus, uh, you know, we're going to focus on expanding the base. We're going to, we're going to, we want to get more people engaged. I think one of the things I really want to do across the political spectrum is to get more people out to the polls. Mm. Regardless, just get more people to the polls and raise that, that, that percentage of, of, of the electorate. So we've been pretty active in that. And the other thing is that I'm going to go into the areas um, that, you know, Democrats have ignored. Um, they just haven't. And, and, and everybody in the county is, is a Republican uh, these days. But I'm going to go into there and, and to talk. Uh, to folks, because I think you can, that's the best way to expand uh, progress. And I'm going to go in there and I'm going to talk. You know, I was down this week uh, in Lee County, Alabama. Now, we, we yeah. carried Lee County, but it's, a, it, you know, it's, it's, it's rural out there where it was. Um, but I want to make sure people know that I'm there for them. And that we're doing things to expand health care. Health care is a driving issue for us. Alabama didn't expand Medicaid. And I am busting my butt to try to get, I, I, I can't vote to expand Medicaid, but I'm doing everything I can from my bully pulpit to expand Medicaid in the state of Alabama. And, uh, and that's, that's going to help a lot of folks. We're bringing in businesses, the business leaders understand. I think it's important uh, for business leaders in Alabama to know that they've got a friendly voice in the Democratic Party, but certainly an Alabama Democratic voice. So. Yeah. We're going to do a lot of things, and I've got to tell you, I, I told folks I like our chances, and I'm not going to worry about the pundits. I'm going to let all those pundits tell me how much I can't win right up until the time I give my victory speech. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Senator Bad Jones. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn more about current exhibitions and live programming, Follow the New York Historical Society on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at NYHistory, or visit us at nyhistory.org.